0: We'll turn in your Bibles this morning to the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. The last chapter of the book of Isaiah, which is chapter 66, and I'll be reading verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 66, and then I'll be reading verses 1 and 2. Beginning in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. And let us pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we have of drawing near to thee and the intercessory work, the constant intercessory work of your Son in our behalf. We thank you for that and we come to thee boldly because of that glorious reality. And these moments, I I would uh, ask for the help of your Holy Spirit during this time together. Uh, I pray that you would help me to bring forth your your holy word in a way that is is pleasing and honoring to thyself and, and truly instructive to the minds and and hearts of each one that is here, I I would pray that you would give all of us uh, ears to hear what you would have for us, and you would illuminate our our hearts and our minds to behold precious things from your law. And so I just commit this time to thee, and pray it would be a, a special preparation for observing the Lord's table. So we thank you, and just commit it to thee, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm still a little bit in the mode of um, transferring from one year to the next. I mean, I know we're several days in, uh, and my intention is to return to our Hebrews next uh, Lord's Day morning. Um, However, as I I noted last uh, Sunday, uh, this time of of year, I think we're more given to reflection and to evaluation, want to make positive changes maybe in different areas of our life. And to the degree that uh, such is the case, what I uh, want to do, want to seek to do this morning, is take advantage of that one more time for one more Lord's Day. And last Sunday we emphasized the the crucial importance of not loving the world. That was our great emphasis. And this morning I want to entertain your thinking uh, with a theme that I, I think is equally important and necessary as it relates to Christian living and our growth and grace. And it has to do especially with the nature of your relationship to the Holy Scriptures. So I'm not talking or addressing this morning the issue if you have a Bible plan for reading through the Bible this year, I think that's very commendable and the better part of wisdom to have some strategy to cover the whole landscape of Scripture. But rather, what I want to bring before your thinking this morning is what I believe is a necessary disposition of soul and spirit to to benefit from our relationship to Holy Scripture and in particular that the term that um, should describe that relationship is reverence it is reverence if I, were, if I were to put it in the form of a question um, would you say that reverence is the right word to depict your interaction with sacred Scripture well obviously that's only a question that you can answer for yourself so the issue is well what would your answer be Well, I think a weighty weighty motive for this consideration, especially as we embark upon a new year, is the the force of Isaiah 66 and verse 2, the last part of verse 2. To this one will I look, that is with approbation and approval. To this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Uh, this makes it very clear that this disposition of, of reverence, it's not highly recommended, it's, but it's indispensable, an indispensable element of our dealings with Holy Scripture, our relationship with the Holy Bible. And this is a, especially the consideration that I want to engage your mind in this morning. So this is one more time where it's kind of like a, a med, something of like a, a meditation. Um, however, I do need to indulge your patience just a little bit, because I won't get to this theme until we get to the third point. So it's going to be sub-point 2 under main point 3. And the reason for that is as I studied the section, um, I I thought it would seem better to put it in its biblical context and then it would have greater impact. So that's the way that I'm going to uh, approach it. When you think of the three main headings this morning, you might think of the fact that God is transcendent and then God is omnipotent and then God is condescendent assuming that is a word but he is whether it's a word or not and we'll get to that but in in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 66 uh, john oswald in his work on isaiah in the, the niv study bible wrote the correct ritual behavior without a changed heart and spirit is only a collection of abominations he indicates the theme of these verses is that correct ritual behavior without a changed heart and a spirit is only a collection of abominations And Isaiah is a book that that powerfully presses into our minds the the kind of worship that God expects and that God really mandates. He makes it clear on the one hand that worship that is pleasing to God will be accompanied by a life that seeks to be pleasing to him. Let me just read to you a few verses from chapter 1. In chapter 1 and verse 10 of Isaiah, it says, Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts they become a burden to me i'm weary of bearing them so when you spread out your hands to prayer i'll hide my eyes from you yes even though you multiply prayers i will not listen your hands are covered with blood so these are activities that are mandated in holy scripture as correct acts of worship but god indicates he wants nothing to do with them and the next couple of verses indicate what they must do wash yourselves make yourselves clean Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And in our text, you might notice in verse 3, Isaiah 66, 3, I didn't read quite that far. Isaiah makes the same kind of point here. Um, and in these, as I read through this verse, you'll notice there are, there are three pairs of um it's a combination of biblically mandated worship with pagan worship and he does it four times here to to show that their worship is not accepted because of the kind of life they are they're leading Verse 3 says, But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. As they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abomination. And you notice the repetition of the term like there. Uh, In each case, it connects an aspect of biblically mandated worship with pagan worship. And this underscores the point that God takes no pleasure in their worship, and the reason is they've chosen their own way. And uh, related to this, Isaiah makes it very clear that God-pleasing worship necessitates the full engagement of the heart. It it requires, on the one hand, a desire for holy living, but also the full engagement of the heart. Now, it's possible that the best-known verse in Isaiah, that also is quoted in the New Testament, is chapter 29 and verse 13, then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They're just going through the religious motions, so to speak. So here he addresses those who are, are, are in this category of just sort of a mechanical kind of worship. Um, <clears throat> and those who would return to the Holy Land and build a temple for him and think that that would appease him. And so the strategy that Isaiah employs in confronting people like that is to placard the character and the nature of God before them. Those who would think in such terms, they need to have the character of God pressed immediately into their soul. So I would have you notice that he does this in three different ways. First of all, by the transcendence of God, the transcendence of God. And the idea of transcendence is to rise above or to go beyond the grasp or comprehension of. um, The incomparable transcendence of God is brought out in in response to their desire to build a temple for the most high God to dwell in. Uh, John Calvin um, commented, commented on this, commented this way. This discourse is different from the preceding one, for here the prophet exclaims against the Jews who puffed up with vain confidence in the sacrifices in the temple, indulge freely in their pleasure, flatter themselves in their sins under this pretense. He shows that this confidence is not only foolish and groundless, but diabolical and accursed, for they grossly mock God who endeavor to serve and appease him by outward ceremonies. Accordingly, he reproaches them with endeavoring to frame an idol in place of God when they shut him up into the temple. And Matthew Henry says, "...the Jews in the prophet's time and afterwards in Christ's time gloried much in the temple and promised themselves great things from it. To humble them, therefore, and to shake their vain confidence, both the prophets and Christ foretold the ruin of the temple." that God would leave it, and then it would soon be desolate. After it was destroyed by the Chaldeans, it soon recovered itself, and the ceremonial services were revived with it. But by the Romans, it was made a perpetual desolation, and the ceremonial law was abolished with it. So we see this idea of the transcendence of God. Let me just kind of press this a little bit. Um, that, That applies to his knowledge. In Psalm 139 and verse 1, We read, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down. And art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word in my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou knowest it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. Now, what the psalmist realizes in regard to himself, that God is intimately acquainted with all of his ways, that's true of every single person in all places and all time. It's not just you're aware of what's going on in my life, but he is fully aware of what's going on in every person's life. If God were to write a biography of your life, um, he wouldn't need to consult with you or your friends or your mother or your co-workers. He is intimately acquainted with all of our ways. So th- this transcendence, therefore, must include what we would call his omnipresence. He is intimately uh, acquainted with all the ways of all people. Therefore, he must be fully present in all places as well. <clears throat> and the psalmist goes on to say, where can I go from my spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee. And the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to thee. So those who are being addressed, they don't have these kind of lofty conceptions of the being of God. Edward Young wrote... It is as as much as God is thus king over all, what is this house that these disobedient ones will build for him? This is not a condemnation of earthly temples as such, but a condemnation of the idea that God can be confined to and is satisfied with such an abode. Solomon had built his temple for the Lord, but in doing so was well aware that God was not confined to an earthly building and that only in a symbolical sense could one speak of the temple as the dwelling of God. The rebellious Jews believed that they might construct the temple as the temple a place of rest for Yahweh. In the temple, however, he would have no place of rest, nor would it be his sanctuary. Those who would build a house influenced by such conceptions were seeking to render the infinite finite, the eternal temporal, the Creator a mere creature. And it might add also, and this is especially brought out in the text, it's a ruling kind of transcendence. The language the language of heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool, I think brings this out again Edward Young, the last prophecy begins and immediately points us to the immensity of God. God is so great that heaven or heavens can't contain him. With the figure of heaven as God's throne and the earth as his footstool, the prophet is asserting that God is king of all and rules over all and that all creation is subject to him. So God's character is such that it compels true worship and adoration from the heart. Then commenting on this phrase and where is a place that I may rest. Here's not a denial that God would have a resting place, but simply the denial that any house that apostates think they can build for God, if not accompanied by true devotion, such as was characteristic of Solomon is a house of place or of rest at all. The language is reminiscent of the remainder of the second part of Isaiah. He had prophesied the exile and return, sees through the spirit of prophecy that the unconverted disobedient people, having come into their own land again, are interested in the externalities of temple worship. Their sacrifices and offerings, however, are heathenish and idolatrous. The true creator cannot endure such worship. So the first aspect of God's being that Isaiah placards before their thinking process is that God is transcendent. It applies to his knowledge. It applies to his power. He is fully present in all places at all times. And then the second aspect of his character that is brought out here is his incomparable power, his omnipotence, his incomparable power. And here we move to verse 2. For my hand made all these things Thus, all these things came into being, declares the Lord. This is a further response to those who would construct a temple with the expectation that um, it would be, God would be constrained to reside there. The temple uh, made by men are, are contrasted with the great material temple of the universe. And in the words, all these, my hand made all these things, indicates um, all that is contained in heaven and earth. Exodus twenty eleven says, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Along the same line, Psalm 146, 6, Who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. And then the phrase, thus all these things came into being, that calls to mind the repetition of the words, And it was so in Genesis chapter 1, just to refresh your, your minds, in chapter 1 and verse 9, God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, after their kind was seed on them, on the earth, and it was so. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens, to give light on the earth, and it was so. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth, after their kind, and it was so. And one commentator wrote, "...inasmuch as his hand has brought into existence heaven and earth, those who think that a mere earthly temple would be a pleasing place of rest for him are haughty in spirit and heart, for they have shown themselves disobedient to him." So the idea here of, of constructing a temple could somehow confine and constrain the God of the Bible. That's opposed to the idea of his transcendence and also to the fact that he constructed or created the totality of the universe and sustains everything that is in it. In fact, I would just say under this heading that the, the right response to the fact that God is the creator of the ends of the earth is, is twofold. Number one, it should elicit fear and reverence from our hearts Psalm 33.8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. And also, it should elicit praise and adoration for his being. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. So, what's going on here? Isaiah is making it clear that those who are guilty of simply going through the motions of worship without an interest in holy living, without the deep involvement of the heart, are radically mistaken to think that by building a temple they could somehow appease the transcendent God of the Bible. And by these actions could in any measure confine or control him. They need to come to grips with his infinite character and power. They need to be affected by the character of God. Well, then in the third place, they need to contemplate the condescension of God. The condescension of God. What kind of person will God positively, in light of this, what kind of person will he positively respond to? Verse 2 says, But to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the right response. Not arrogance, not pride, but humility and contriteness. This little phrase... To this one, I will look. It's to have regard. It implies it implies uh, approbation, acceptance, and affection. A good example of this, I think, is in Genesis chapter four and verse three, in God's response to uh, Abel as opposed to Cain. Let me just read to you these verses. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Now There are some... I believe the reason that God uh, accepted Abel's sacrifice is because it was a blood offering. And, and, and you may think that, and, and you may embrace that, and if you do, that's okay. Uh, I'm of the, of the persuasion here, and by the way, you're in good company if that's the way you look at it. Nevertheless, I'm of the persuasion that the, that, that the reason Abel's sacrifice was accepted was the condition of his heart. Uh, John Calvin, I thought, had some helpful comments here. He makes the point, what is emphasized is not so much the offering but the one who is giving the offering. Uh, in verse 3, it says, Cain brought forth an offering to the Lord. Verse 4, Abel on his part also brought of the first firstlings of his flock. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And as you continue reading through that chapter, you realize what kind of a, a man Cain was. He, he became angry with his brother and he murdered him. And in 1 John three twelve it says, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Uh, Hebrews 11, 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. So be that as it may, at least I, I think his, his heart was right. So God had regard for him and accepted his sacrifice. But note further uh, that God looks with favor upon persons who display two closely related qualities here. The first, I'm actually putting a couple words together, but the first one is who is humble and contrite of spirit humble and contrite of spirit spirit uh, refers to the disposition of the heart um Humility is a term that is translated um, affliction in some cases. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Uh, He does not forget the afflicted. He will have compassion on his uh, afflicted. Um, It's used of those who are the subjects of divine grace. In Isaiah 61, 1, which the Lord applies to himself in the New Testament, "...the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and and freedom to prisoners." Um, And then the term contrite is closely related in meaning. It's used in 2 Samuel chapter 4 of one who's crippled in his feet. Psalm 34, 18, very similar to our text. "...the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are are crushed in, in spirit." J Alexander wrote Contrite or Broken in Heart or Spirit it's a scriptural description of the the subjects of divine grace in its humbling and subduing influences and then Isaiah 57:15 Uh, brings out the the benefits of this kind of a heart. For thus says the the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So contrite and humble are not only objects of his approbation and affection, but they're also subjects of his reviving work. This is to give life or energy to. The Bible indicates that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a divine influence to live the Christian life. Now the second quality, this is the point for today in case of, you know, anyway, this is the second quality uh, that further identifies those who are the objects of his approbation are those who tremble at his word. And this is the disposition, the necessary disposition to benefit from our relationship with Holy Scripture. And the basic idea is awe and reverence. It occurs in verse 5 of chapter 66 in the same sense. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Psalm 119, 120, same idea occurs. My flesh trembles for fear of thee, I'm afraid of thy judgments. Psalm 119, 161 Princes persecute me without cause. My heart stands in awe of thy words. Um. Uh, And later on, if you're trying to think, what in the world, what was the point the pastor was trying to make today? Uh, How did he say we are to benefit from from his word? This is it right here. My heart stands in awe of thy words. This occurs in Psalm 119, and that has to mean that delighting in the word, loving the law, standing in awe of his word are not contradictory, but they are complementary to one another. Um, now, uh, I want to conclude um, by three offering you three thoughts. number one, I, I know it 's right to tremble and have a reverence for god 's word. How do I know if i 'm doing that and, and, and The evidence of that would be if there is a deep desire to obey it if there's a real desire of soul not just to know it but also to put it into practice knowledge is necessary but the issue is do i want to obey it do i want to put it into practice again john calvin it might be thought strange at first sight that he demands in believers since nothing is more sweet or gentle than the word of the lord and nothing is more opposite to opposite to it than to excite terror i reply there are two kinds of trembling One by which they are terrified and flee, and another which affects the heart and promotes the obedience of those who reverence and fear God. Hence, infer that true godliness consists in having our senses brought into a state of obedience to God. The nature of faith is to yield obedience to God and to listen to him attentively and patiently when when he speaks. Obey is better than sacrifice. Jesus said, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Keep my commandments and live." Jay Alexander says, "An eager and yet fearful haste to execute His will." So, so an evidence that you and I have a reverence for holy Scripture. There is a desire, not just to know it, but to put it into practice in one's life. Secondly, in light of this, a help at trembling at God's word is to realize that when you're reading the Bible, this is God speaking directly to us. You and not need to realize this is God speaking directly to us. This, this is why we are to have the same disposition for the Bible that we are for God. We are to reverence God. We are to reverence His Word. We are to have an awe for God. We are to have an awe for His Word. It's a perfect transcript of, of a transcript of His character. Isaiah eight nineteen says, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? The question is, yes, a people should consult their God. How do they do that? The next verse, to the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. If they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no light. And Jeremiah 23 reveals the character of a false prophet Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I'm going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They're leading you into futility. They're leading you into, into a land of false hopes. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. The source of their message is their own imagination. It's their own heart and Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 14, 14, then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Well, then third, an evidence that we have a true reverence for God's word is if, you know in your heart that you have a a tender heart towards spiritual things, hopefully a hard heart, increasingly a hard heart towards worldly things, but a a tender heart towards spiritual things. The great illustration of this later on, if you get a chance, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And I'm just going to read to you, Josiah was arguably the godliest king of the southern kingdom. This is how he responded to Holy Scripture. Second Chronicles 34:19 It came about when the king heard the words of the law he tore his clothes and he told others to go inquire of the Lord from me. And for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book, which has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord, which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. He is struck to the depths of his being because we have not done what is in God's holy law and God's assessment of this response on the part of Josiah is in verse 27, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes, and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. So what I am um, pressing on your mind this morning is that the indispensable quality needed a disposition to benefit from Holy Scripture is reverence and awe for it. God looks with affection and approbation not necessarily on someone who is wealthy or has influence but on those who are humble and contrite and who tremble at his word. I want to leave you with these words. These are from a book that Richard Mayhew wrote some time ago on spiritual intimacy. Uh, no source is uh, ascribed to them but they convey the I think the spirit of our theme this is what is written about the Bible and our relationship to the Bible. It says this book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Heaven Here heaven is open and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly frequently and prayerfully it is a mine of wealth health to the soul and a river of pleasure it is given to you here in this life will be opened at the judgment and established forever it involves the highest responsibility will reward the greatest labor and condemns all who trifle with its contents let us pray father we thank you that you have given us a a holy book to guide us and direct us in all circumstances. We, we thank you for that. I pray that you would take what we have considered this morning and help us to be people who delight in your law and love your law, but also reverence your pure, holy word. We know it is you speaking directly to us. So I pray that you might be pleased to take these considerations, apply them to our own souls for our own good and for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.